Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I mentioned in the first episode in the series that this letter is an occasional letter, meaning that it was written in response to specific issues and questions that had arisen in the Corinthian church. Scholars will go back and forth as to whether we should identify eight questions or nine or 10 or 11. It's hard to say, largely because some of these issues appear to bleed into each other, so it can be hard to know when one answer ends and another begins. It does seem fairly clear that as we leave chapter 4 and enter chapter 5, we are beginning a new conversation. We were talking about division. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about sexual immorality. Apparently, there were some folks in Corinth who thought they could be Christians without adopting a biblical understanding of human sexuality. And so Paul was very eager to address that. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, in order to understand this massively important passage, we have to understand what Paul means by the word that has been translated here into English as sexual immorality. He uses the Greek word pornea, which originally referred to sleeping with prostitutes. But by this time in the history of the Greek language, it has come to mean any form of prohibited sexual relationship. And that becomes immediately clear here because the context indicates that Paul is not talking here about sleeping with prostitutes. He's talking about incest. When a first-century Greek-speaking Jewish background person uses the word pornea, scholars generally assume that his or her frame of reference for prohibited sexual behavior would have been the holiness code in Leviticus 17-26. There, it specifically refers to a variety of prohibited forms of sexual behavior, including the sin of incest. Leviticus 18.8 addresses this issue directly. And and this is clearly the passage that the Apostle Paul has in mind. It says, you are not to have sex with your father's wife. It will shame your father, closed quote. So Paul explicitly appeals to the Old Testament in order to outlaw unnatural sexual relationships within the New Testament church. That is so important for us to recognize. People will often say, We're in the New Testament now, so you can't go around quoting the Old Testament on matters of sexuality. The Old Testament has been abolished. Well, that's not quite correct. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Close quote, Matthew 5, 17. And apparently, whatever Jesus meant by fulfill them, did not mean contradict or ignore them. Paul is not in any way self-conscious 
about using the Old Testament Holiness Code to regulate sexual behavior in the New Testament church at Corinth. In the article on the word pornea in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the section on the New Testament use of this word begins this way. The New Testament is characterized by an unconditional repudiation of all extramarital and unnatural intercourse. Closed quote. There is simply no credible argument to be made for a New Testament sexual ethic that is in any way at odds with what we find in the Old Testament. And we can't appeal to Jesus as if he represents a more liberal and progressive way. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus doesn't loosen anything from the Old Testament. If anything, he tightens things up. He, he says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Closed quote. So Jesus says, not only am I looking at your sexual behavior, I am looking at your sexual fantasies. I am looking at what goes on in your mind. And I am telling you that you better wage war against any action and any thought that is inconsistent with the values of the kingdom of God. You better be willing to cut your arm off or gouge your own eye out. That's how serious you need to be here because there will be no sexual immorality in the new heavens and the new earth, period. That, that's what Jesus says. That doesn't sound easier or more permissive than what we find in the Old Testament. So Paul is making it clear here that the same principles for human sexuality that were the norm in the Old Testament church remain the norm in the New Testament church. And if you will not affirm those norms and by the grace of God pursue those norms, then you will be excluded. You will be cast out. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, Paul is very concerned, not just about the activity that was going on in Corinth. He's concerned about that. But he's also concerned about the attitude of the church toward this activity. They were proud of their progressive and permissive spirit. But Paul sees this as an indication that they are in grave spiritual peril. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. How a church responds to gross sexual immorality in their midst tells you a great deal about their present spiritual health, or lack thereof. Frederick Goudet says here, A living church, which had in it the power of its head, would have risen as one man and gone into a common act of humiliation and mourning like a family for the death of one of its members. Closed quote. So this is serious business. Paul is reacting here to this indication the same way a doctor might react to the discovery of tachycardia in an incoming patient. Something's not right here, and we need to get to the bottom of things fast. This patient is in critical condition. So, Paul begins to take drastic action. Verse 3, 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to deliver someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? That's a very unusual and and very alarming phrase. Theodore of Antioch, widely considered the greatest biblical interpreter of his time, writing in the 5th century, understood it this way. He said, What Paul means is that the person concerned should be put out of the church and forced to live in the world, which is ruled by Satan. That way, he will learn to fear God and escape the greater punishment that is to come. Closed quote. Modern commentaries tend to adopt the same view. So, for example, the Tyndale New Testament commentary says here, whatever else it means, it seems to include excommunication. The idea underlying this is that outside the church is the sphere of Satan. To be expelled from the church accordingly is to be delivered over into that region where Satan holds sway. It is a very forcible expression for the loss of all Christian privileges, close quote. So we're talking about excommunication here. We are talking about removing the graces and protections of the church from an individual who is in persistent and flagrant violation of the moral norms of the kingdom of God. And we should also notice that this is done solely on the basis of Jesus Christ as the head of the church as defined and explicated by the Apostle Paul. Meaning, he doesn't tell the church to convene a council to discuss what forms of sexual behavior will henceforth be considered appropriate and inappropriate. Nope. That already has been established. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Jesus did not come to usher in progressive sexual values. If anything, Jesus narrowed the definition, raised the bar, and personalized the applications. So Paul knows that he is operating here with the full weight of dominical authority. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the authority of Jesus, as defined and explicated by the apostles, establishes the inviolable boundaries of the kingdom of God. But those boundaries need to be affirmed and policed by the gathered assembly. Paul doesn't just say, the brother is forthwith excommunicated. No, no, no. He says, when you are assembled, hand over this man. Paul is calling for an AGM or an assembly at which the whole church is to affirm that a boundary exists and a boundary has been crossed and a brother must be excommunicated. This public work is necessary, Paul says, to reestablish a right relationship with our God and head. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, 
but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. David Pryor says here, One persistent, flagrant sinner who remains accepted without discipline within the Christian fellowship taints the whole body. Just as the Jews had to celebrate their deliverance from bondage with no leaven, so Christians must continually celebrate their deliverance from sin without any compromise with the very things from which they have been set free. Otherwise, the whole worship and community life of the Christian church becomes a charade full of insincerity and falsehood. Closed quote. Those are key words there. Persistent and flagrant. To be clear, church discipline is not for repentant sinners. It is for persistent sinners. It is not for people who struggle and who stumble, but who then experience conviction and immediately repent and make appropriate restitution. It is for flagrant sinners, sinners who arrogantly stomp on lines of authority and who invent stories and excuses justifying their own rebellious behavior. Now, why does Paul make this point by means of a variety of symbols and bits of imagery drawn from the Passover story? And the simplest answer is probably that Paul wrote this letter very close to the celebration of the Jewish Passover. And so these images were forefront in his mind. Just before Passover in traditional Jewish homes, the mother of the house would lead the children on a meticulous search for crumbs and dirt and anything else that might contain even the smallest hint of yeast. They would gather up all the crumbs and throw the whole lot out the front door into the street. And only then, with the house cleansed, would they be ready to eat the Passover meal together as a family. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you Corinthians need to start removing some people from your church. You've got some people who have been rolling in breadcrumbs, and they're just sitting there with you at the Lord's Supper like a giant corn dog, and nobody's saying a peep. What's the matter with you people? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may become a new loaf, a new bread, a new body, a new people unto God in Christ. Now, he wants to be very careful how they apply this, and he understands that this could easily be misunderstood. So he circles back. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul is clear here. He says, I'm not saying that you can't hang out with your pagan prostitute sleeping with neighbor, okay? I am saying that you can't take the Lord's Supper. You, you can't permit someone to call themselves a Christian who's sleeping with prostitutes, or in this case, who's sleeping with his father's wife. That is a flagrant and intentional flouting of the authority of Scripture and the headship of Jesus Christ. You have to take that seriously. You have to purge the evil person from among you. Now, that phrase, by the way, that Paul uses there is in quotation marks in most of your English Bibles for a reason. 
It is a direct quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Six times, actually, in the book of Deuteronomy, after laying down a moral principle, Moses says that if someone arrogantly tramples on this principle in defiance of the authority of God, you need to purge the evil person from among you. So this is simply Paul applying the moral code of the Torah to New Testament church life. That in itself is worthy of our consideration. Now, Paul is eager to ensure that they have understood the nuance here. He is not calling for isolationism. He is not saying that you can't go over to your neighbor's house for a barbecue because your neighbor is living common law with his girlfriend or your neighbor is living openly with a homosexual mate. That isn't at all what Paul is saying. He is saying you can't intimately associate. You can't credit as a Christian someone who says they're following Jesus who openly flouts and tramples upon the authority of Holy Scripture. The Pillar New Testament commentary puts it this way. Such people are to be excluded from the Lord's table and other meals when the church gathers for fellowship. Leon Morris, in the Tyndale New Testament commentary, goes on to add, Where anyone claims to be a Christian but leads a life that belies his profession, there is to be no such close fellowship as will countenance his sin, close quote. Now, some people will say here, well, wait a second, that, that doesn't sound very much like Jesus. Jesus accepted everybody. Well, yes and no. Jesus did eat with prostitutes and sinners. That's true. He was with them, however, as a physician among the sick. He wasn't hanging out, and he wasn't affirming or endorsing their behavior. In fact, Nothing Paul says here sounds any different than what Jesus himself said in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus said that persistent sinners within the church were to be first confronted, and, and then if that didn't work, he said they were to be excommunicated. Matthew 18, 17 says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Closed. Quote. So, no matter where you look in the New Testament, this is the principle that you will find. C.K. Barrett summarizes Paul's teaching here on association very succinctly. He says, strict discipline within, complete freedom of association outside. Close quote. So by all means, make friends with sexually immoral people in the culture. Make friends with, with people and, and tell them about the life-changing, nature-renewing gospel of Jesus Christ. Do that by all means, brothers and sisters. Jesus prayed for us to be in the world, but he also prayed for us not to be of the world. Jesus told us to be salt and light, and he warned us what would happen if we forfeited our distinctive witness in the culture. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So for the sake of our witness, for the sake of our blessing, for the sake of our own souls, and for the salvation of our wayward brothers and sisters, we need to take this seriously. We need to judge ourselves lest we be condemned along with the world. Thanks be to God for this much-needed passage of his word. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. 
If you've appreciated the End of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 